So, all right, you should have an outline that at the very top says eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. And we have been for some time on element six. I believe this is our 19th lesson on element six. And uh, I am committed to making sure that we don't go past the letter Z on element six. So we'll have less than 26 uh, before. And because uh, if you remember on element five, we ran into like 29 or 30. So we had element uh, Z small a and element Z small b. <laughs> See, we went ran past Z. So, um, if you look at um, Roman number one, there's the eight essential elements. We're again, we're on element six. Roman numerals two, three, and four tell you about how many weeks we spent on each of the first five elements. And then uh, Roman numeral five kind of gives you a summary of what we've covered in the last eighteen weeks on element uh, six, receiving Jesus Christ or responding to the gospel, and, and also key, key components of that and the key exchanges. And today we're going to talk about entering into eight exchanges that happened in Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, uh, his ascension, that these are exchanges that we enter into at the beginning of our Christian life, and we enter into afresh every day, and this is how you live the Christian life. This, uh, you, you, enter, you live the Christian life by Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in this body, uh, there's, different, you know, there's two different Greek words, soma and sarks, for, uh, for flesh. The life I live in this body, I live by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself for me. So we actually live out of the power of his resurrection. If you live out of any other base, you will have performance-based Christianity, you will have self-righteousness, you'll have hypercriticism toward the others, you'll, uh, and you'll have a lot of failure in your life. Uh, you cannot, the Christian life is not difficult, it's totally impossible and only our Lord has ever done it or could ever do it. But his grace is more, and more than abundant to enter into his resurrection life every day. And we're going to talk about how, entering that today and how you enter that and how you exchange your life for his life. Now, um, we're going to jump right down to Roman numeral 7 and get into this. We've, uh, I'm not going to get into the eight exchanges that, that uh, we've taught on many, many times in many series. It's, it's, it's part of our Knowing and Loving God series. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, it's part of our uh, The Passion of the Christ series that we did when the movie was kind of out and, and popular. It's, it's something we've done at Easter time. It's been an Easter message I've given. I've given this message a number of times, the part about the eight, what the eight exchanges are. Um, today I'm really going to focus on how do you do it sort of more practical. Now, the idea of an exchange, the verb is to substitute one thing for another, and the noun is an act of substituting one thing for another. Now, it's important to understand that when you're exchanging, you're dying to something or giving something up in exchange for something of equal or greater value. Now, in free enterprise, what the, the way free enterprise works is you make an exchange because to you, the thing you're making the exchange for is of equal or greater value. Like, yeah, it's worth a dollar to get a bottle of water that's only worth 10 cents because, you know, I'm at a ball game and they have a, a monopoly on the money or whatever. You know, you, you evaluate whether it's, whether it's a fair or equal exchange. So, um, it, some of the definitions include to replace with an equivalent or something greater, to give and receive reciprocally, and, uh, to interchange, to exchange gifts, transfer, make recompense, uh, restitution, uh, and those kinds of ideas. Now, um, so some core scriptures about this. Uh, in, in scripture, there's a concept called the locus classicus. We've covered that a lot of times in this church as well. 
And the locus classicus is based on the idea that in, for almost every major Christian doctrine, there's at least one place that speaks about it most clearly and most thoroughly, and you start there and you build uh, around it all the other scriptures that address it, and you build around that the entire message of the entire Bible. One of them, as we saw when we dealt with justification last two weeks ago, uh, justification has become this radically individualistic idea of I'm justified before God because we've taken it out of the context of the entire Bible, and especially Paul, who uses the word the most, who's rethinking all of biblical Judaism and Second Temple Judaism in, in light of Christ and so forth. And so justification is actually being made right with God's eternal decrees, his purposes, his cosmic purpose to, to restore the whole world. It's not just that you radically individualistically are getting some benefit. It's, that's how we preach the gospel today. Like, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We start on a basis of appealing to narcissistic, selfish people based on what, what's selfishly in it for you. And the, the gospel is like, uh, God has a purpose he has a global cosmic thing that he's eternally declared and is working toward, and you need to get right with it and with him and with what he's doing. And he's inviting you. So that, that's why conversion necessarily involves a sense of calling. If you don't have a sense of calling grip in your life, you really have to go back and get a better hold on the gospel. If you're not starting to make the kinds of sacrifices, you know, yesterday, um, I've been an Ohio State Buckeyes football fan for eh, about 57 years, and uh, a little while, and uh, <clears throat> so uh, I've only been to the stadium one time before, uh, and that was uh, approximately 40 years ago, so I, you know, Logan had free tickets from a friend of ours, so uh Logan graciously asked me if I'd be the one to go with him, so we went. And uh, not having seen their whole sports complex, we ended up parking like over three miles away from the stadium and enjoying a good walk. And uh, and we went by all these other stadiums. And the one we went by this one stadium that's for track and field and and for lacrosse and so forth. And it just every ten feet there was a banner for a different athlete uh, that had been in that program over the years. And as I was thinking on that, I was like, Lord, you know, Lord's able to give you insights out of anything. I just began to realize, like, every person that's on one of those banners fell in love with what they were doing to the point that they made crazy sacrifices to attain what they attained. And that's like a big issue in our culture today. Like Paul talks about... In 1 Corinthians 9, how we are that we run for an eternal uh, wreath. But you know, the, the in the Greek games, they ran they ran instead of for a gold medal, they ran for an olive wreath, right? And people would make crazy levels of sacrifice. Although he's become sort of a laughing stock. Back in the 60s, there was a guy named Bruce Jenner who won the decathlon. And uh, but before he won it, uh, he had uh, actually finished like third or sixth or something the previous Olympics, and so he was so uh, passionate about winning it that he practiced for the entire four years. He didn't miss a single day for at least eight hours. There was no practices that were less than eight hours. And he did it for what? Not something near as important as what you're walking with Christ about. And so you've got to get past, like, you know, this is the goal is to go to heaven and see, begin to enter into God's cosmic plan to change the whole world through Christ. Because that'll take every bit of studying and every bit of self-sacrifice and every bit of uh, dedication that, you, that your life could muster. That, you know, if you really read, as we're going to study in the church history class, you read the lives of a lot of great saints Lots of them ruined their health over their dedication to Christ. 
most people today wouldn't give up their eight hours for Christ even once. So, uh, you know, so let's, let's get into this idea of some core scriptures about exchanging. For Christ also died for sins for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So here's an exchange. He was just, and he died for the unjust, which would be us. <laughs> that would be me. Uh, I've met the enemy, and he is I. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, I wish I, we had more space on the page, so, so I'm giving you portions of that passage. For the love of Christ controls us. Is that really what, if, you look, if God exposes your heart to you, what's really motivating your life? I'm passionately in love with Christ, and every little bit of my life shows that. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died, here's what he died to give you, so that they who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. You know, in a day of uh, TV evangelists promoting themselves and ministries doing self-promotion and so forth, he died to free you from the shallowness of living for yourself. That's why it's anathema to present the gospel that Christ loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He has a wonderful plan for the entire universe and cosmos, and your life's not lining up very well with it. And he came to set you free so you could be a part of it <clears throat> and make the necessary sacrifices like he made. So, uh, then of course the exchange, quoting Paul is there quoting from Isaiah 53 when he says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So that's one of my wife's and I, you know, I hope you husbands and wives have a mutual love and respect for each other that, it, that also involves a little bantering with each other once in a while. So whenever we, one of us confronts the other one about something, my wife will retort, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, as I will to her more than, more than she does to me. <laughs> so uh, it's just fun. Um, the eight exchanges made at the cross, hopefully you know that sin and sins are something different by now, and that sin is an entirely deeper issue, and this goes deeper than even pride and self-righteousness and, and all that. It, it goes to man's desire to hide from the presence of God and to not take responsibility and to fess up. Uh, you know, sin is giving you a personal revolt against growing up. That's the essence of sin, really. Sin does not want to grow up, take charge and take roots. Sin wants to play with Facebook and TV, and, and sin does not like the Scripture. When I was a child, I thought like a child and so forth. Sin wants to, to keep you a child. Uh, hopefully, also, you understand that alienation at the fall was not just from God, but from mankind to mankind, and even to uh, alienation to yourself. You will never be whole unless you begin to pursue taking up your cross, doing the will of God, becoming a disciple, uh, putting yourself in the context to be discipled, as we're going to look at, <laughs> and on and on. So, here are some things about entering uh, into the eight exchanges made at the cross. Now, I always hate when this happens. After I had already sent this Don Vash, and he was already printing it, and I was in the bathroom shaving, and I was thinking about this, I said, really, I should have given four. So there will be a fourth one that's not on your notes. And if, if that time is correct, I'm doing better than usual. Man, there might be hope yet. All right. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, Let's talk about entering the eight exchanges uh, of Christ by encountering Christ. The essence of our fallen nature, if you remember, in Genesis 3, the serpent said what? You shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself good from evil. Our entire culture is predicated upon truth is what I say truth is. Values are what I say values are. 
they are constant every news station and every is you know constantly taking an opinion poll as if like if 60% of the people believe this it must be reality what does what does the majority opinion have to do with anything <laughs> nothing really especially in a fallen world right so uh understand uh that uh, truth is, uh, is what God defines it to be. Whenever I read the word truth in my Bible, I actually just substitute the word reality. Jesus, I am the way, the reality, and the life. The, the Christian life, salvation in, in essence, is a journey out of darkness, unbelief, unreality, into reality. That's really what it is. And the more you encounter the reality of God, the more substance you begin to have. So um, what I want to make very clear is that we all want to, to, to have salvation on our terms. And what Christ is trying to set you free is from that view of salvation. Okay? Because what he's saving you from is being your own Lord and being your own God and doing your own thing and having your career and your timetable for your according the opposite sex or for your retirement or your getting your house such a certain kind of nice house or whatever you, you, you know whatever you think life should be. Christ came to set you free from, from being your own measure of all things. Protagoras of Abdera, one of the great statements of humanism, man is the measure of all things. That is rebellion against God, and that is what the serpent promised to Eve. You shall be as God yourself, determining for yourself what's good and what's evil. So, if you are converted to the real gospel then you will actually be seeking to exchange your life for Christ's life the way he defines and according to his terms. And you will must of necessity be taking in all four of these ways of encountering Christ. Christ does not just come to us in some nebulous, undiscernible way. You know, I always talk about the delivery systems of the grace of Jesus Christ. When you turn on the faucet, there's a complex delivery system that brought that water to you. Some city had to harvest it from somewhere. They had to clean it up to maybe within 50% of federal minimum standards. <laughs> uh, that's another issue. But I uh, uh, hope you don't drink tap water. And uh, they had to pump it up into a, into a water tower somewhere, and they had to take the, you know, the principles of hydraulics that water seeks its own level and that water tower has to be taller than your sink and has to be connected by a series of pipes that go down and under the ground and come back up through the water meter and as long as that's all connected and that sink is below that water tower water comes out now you don't think about that every time you get a drink of water I think about the uh, part about the city not cleaning it up that's why I have my uh, super duper seven carbon filters, then, then reverse osmosis system, then, then uh, calcium added, additives, uh, water system, but uh, that goes to both ice makers and all five sinks in my house, because I would never drink tap water, but uh, that's another whole issue, but uh, anyway, um, you have to Exchange your life for Christ according to the four things we're about to talk about. Number one is by finding and receiving him, the living word of God, in the written word of God. Frankly, this is something, you know, a few years back, Jason came to my defense once because someone said, when is he going to stop talking every message about why we need to study the Bible more and, and know theology and know church history and so forth? And Jason's, you know, like someone said, I'm tired of hearing that every Sunday. And Jason said, whenever we don't need to hear it anymore, he'll probably stop talking about it. Uh, now, it's, I, it, I am very gratified by the fact that we have 19 people taking our systematic theology class this time around and about 25 taking the church history class. Uh, 
And, uh, and there's signs that people are getting more serious about studying the, the scriptures. Lots of people who I'm in fellowship with on a somewhat regular basis. Uh, I can, you know, it's clear they're taking their biblical studies to new heights. That's so important. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it's the scriptures that testify about him. If you want to know the Lord, you can only know the Lord as you find him in the scriptures. And he wasn't talking about the New Testament when he said that, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So he's saying that the Old Testament scriptures testify about him. You want to need know Jesus? Study Leviticus and Ezekiel and Hosea, etc. So Luke 24, two, two encounters that Jesus had with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and then the disciples in the upper room. He basically says that the entire Old Testament testifies about me. And open up their minds to begin to understand. Like if you want, you know, John prayed a prayer uh, a couple Sundays ago when he was ending his message. Lord, help us discern the apostolic hermeneutic. Well, you know, what we're after in Grace Christian Fellowship is not to interpret the Bible the way the modern dispensationalist, conservative, so-called fundamentalists interpret it in their paradigms. We want to learn how to interpret it the way the apostles interpreted it. That's so key. That's when it will yield the message of Christ. Because Christ made it clear that he was sending those apostles to bear witness to him. And the, what the apostles were doing was rethinking the entire Old Testament in light of the fact that every page is a revelation of Christ. And they were teaching us in the New Testament how to do that. So... John 8, Jesus says, if you, after those who have believed in him, so this, I put this before you, if, you know, in math, there's if and only if, if you continue in my word, then you're truly my disciples. You know what that means? If you're not abiding in his word, you're a false disciple. You're a liar. You don't really believe it. You're just deceived. If you continue in my word, and you know what? I am, I am so grateful to God that uh, even people who know a little bit about our church from the outside and visit are beginning to say, wow, this, this is a church that's really developing a culture where gradually people embrace uh, a desire to study the scripture more comprehensively, more fully, and take scripture study more deeply. That used to be what characterized Protestant Christianity. And that has long since ceased to be. We, frankly, have never uh, had hardly anyone who, uh, even Bible college graduates who have ever read much Bible when they walk in. If you continue in my word, then you're disciples of mine, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It's not just, like, I believe in casting out demons, but it's more than casting out demons that, ca that sets you free. It's revelation an illumination of the living word of God, Jesus Christ, that sets you free. As he becomes reality to you. Now, I put some alternate translations for the word continue there. Hold on to is NIV. Continue is our King James and RSV. Abide is New King James. Remain is Young's literal translation. The Greek word there is meno, and meno means all of those things. Whenever you see a word in, in good English translations that they translate differently, it's telling you something that you should, and you should know this and memorize this. Then what's the reason I always compare at least four translations when I'm reading is when it uses four, five, six different words to translate the same Greek word, and these are the top best English translations, and we're in a time period where we have the best translations to draw from that any Christians have ever had in the history of the world or any people of God. When that happens, it's because it's too rich of a word in the Greek for one English word. So the word meno in the, is a very, very common, I didn't look up how many times it's used, but I think it's used, I don't know, like 300 and some times in the New Testament. But it means to live in, to dwell in. 
It's what God was saying through to Joshua and the Israelites when he said, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Not like, if you only have 10 minutes a day to have a little devotion in. Holy cow. You'll die. You know, how would you like it if I said that if you only have enough time for three grapes a day and, you know, if you get a lot of extra time, you could work in a quarter of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I want you to live on that. Uh, that might help me for a few months. <laughs> I, probably have, I, I probably could afford that for uh, a few months, but, uh, but probably not for a year. <laughs> and... Uh, if, you could, if we could see our spirits, our spirits and our minds look like those World War II films of the people coming out of the camps. We've been on an 800-calorie-a-day biblical diet for so many years. No wonder we're spiritually anemic. You must exchange your life for Christ's life by sitting at his feet like Martha, or no, Mary, sorry, not Martha, and uh, listen, in, in enjoying his word. It should be your most enjoyable experience. Like if I really had my choice, no, please don't take this hard as, as my, the church that I pastor, but I would much rather be in my study studying than even spending time with any of you. <laughs> it's my favorite thing to do. I, you know, so I'll hide out there for like 16 hours. I'm looking forward to the fact that my cell phone died because some of you can't remember the church line. <laughs> it's not on our website or anything or, or, or in the bulletin. Um, so... Acts 2.42, they were continually devoted to the apostles' teaching. I need to move on to the next point. Colossians 3.8.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Let it be your way of life. Find, find ways to take... You can listen to the word of God when you're driving in the car. You can tape it all over your bathroom walls like John Gray used to do. Now that he has a nice bathroom, they don't do that as much anymore. But are they still on the dashboard of your car? Used to have John would have like scripture verses taped everywhere. I used to just ask him if I could use the restroom just because I wanted to read the Bible for a little bit. <laughs> I'm really just going up there to see what Bible verses he's got on the wall this week. But uh, all right, so all right. Next thing, drinking from the fountain. Uh, in John 7, 37 through 39, Jesus stands at the great feast and he says, if anybody's thirsty, and I hope to God you know that you are, let him come to me and drink. He who drinks of me out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, not a drip not a little trickle, not a dampness, but rivers of living water. Can you honestly say that's my experience in the things of God? Like I, this power of the Holy Spirit is flowing from me all day, all the time. It's just, it's like cool water to a guy who's been walking in the desert. You know, yesterday we uh, we missed the... Uh, they cut off the, the parking near Lane Avenue, and we were like four cars away from where they cut it off, so we had to drive like three miles away to park. And uh, that meant if we walked really fast and hard for the entire time, we could get there still about 10 minutes before the game started. So we were really pushing it and sweating and so forth. And, uh, you know, the first thing I did when, uh, when we got there, Logan went up to our seats, and I, I went and bought two bottles of water for whatever outrageous choice they chose, because they don't let you bring your own in. Four bucks apiece for two bottles of water, cause, because I was thirsty from that long walk. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, because the Spirit was not yet given, because he was not yet glorified. He is specifically referring to what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and you need that to happen in your life as a stepping stone to being able to drink regularly, often, until the anointing of God is flowing from your life, till you are passionate for the things of God. I remember a particular brother saying the night he got baptized in the Holy Spirit that this was the most peace he'd ever felt and so forth. And the thing I want to say to you is that's where God wants you to live. That needs to become your normal reality. So we can change the song from there's a dampness of life flowing out from me. A little bit of mold and moisture. Makes the captives get sick. (laughs) You you know, (laughs) really, God wants us to, to, you know, like if you're excited about God, notify your body in worship and in what you do and what your priorities are. Drink from the fountain. Jesus said, if I throw out or cast out demons by the power of God, then know that the kingdom of God has already overtaken you. Uh, Luke's version says, the finger of God. uh, Where the spirit of God is being manifest, there is liberty, Paul says. Where the spirit of God is being manifest, that's where the kingdom of God is being manifest. God reigns by his spirit. The reason all the spiritual warfare in the church today is trying to say the Holy Spirit died with the apostles and left us is because the enemy fears a spirit-empowered church more than any other thing. Because you can't do this Christian life apart from the power of the Spirit. It's impossible. And the same continued anoint the whole point of John's Passover supper, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, is to say, I'm going to be with the Father. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Spirit, and he'll bear witness of me, and he'll bring into your remembrance all I said to you, and he'll lead you and guide you into all the truth and, uh, and all these other things that he says about the Spirit. Because... The same Holy Spirit that he had is going to be, after Pentecost, is going to be available for every Christian all the time. And you have to drink of that Spirit. You've got to become a drunkard when it comes to the Holy Spirit water. When was the last time anyone ever accused us of being drunk? Maybe some weddings. <laughs> no, uh, maybe when it was true. But uh, hopefully it was true in the spirit. Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is not meek and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. Where? In the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I've got to move on because, see if I can even find where I'm supposed to be going. The last thing is the thing of eating the body of Christ. Now that's not just that we take the communion meal, because the New Testament Christians, besides the communion meal that they celebrated, they had what was called the love feast or the agape feast. They, had, they ate together. They shared life together. It says they took their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart from house to house. They got Kentucky Fried Chicken and hung out at Damien's house. <laughs> then we had to repent. But uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll bring forth fruit in keeping with that repentance someday. No, you you cannot uh, you cannot partake of Christ unless you partake of Him through a holistic local fellowship. Because Christ comes to you every bit through, those, through the community of believers as much as he does through the Holy Spirit or the scriptures. And so if you have a see you on Sunday relationship with the church, you're going to have a see you on Sunday relationship with Christ. 
as simple as that. Now, the Lord's Day is very important. I always say if you look at anything in the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church, and you kind of say, well, where did this come from? The practices go back to the apostolic practices. Some of the meanings have been twisted and so forth. I don't necessarily believe in the concept of mortal and venial sins, but it was considered a mortal sin to miss the Lord's Day. We miss the Lord's Day for every kind of reason under the heavens. I missed last Sunday for the first time in uh, more than two or three years because I can't control when my relatives decide to get married. <laughs> but, but if I had my way, I wouldn't have them get married in, in, on the Lord's Day. Creeds, communion, scripture readings, teachings, catechisms, worship, meals together, all these things are clearly discernible in the New Testament. And all these things need to be our way of life. Community and discipleship are inextricably intertwined. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You have to be a disciple of Jesus directly through his word and by his spirit. You also have to be a disciple of Jesus through a body of Christians. And there's a way that older Christians, you might have a one-on-one -on -one person who helps disciple you. But we all should be discipling one another as a way of life. I look out here and there's like 20 people in the, sitting in these pews that I regularly get insights from that I need. Probably don't acknowledge that enough. There, you know, there's guys like, you know, Chris Wu is sitting right there. I, I actually probably wouldn't do anything without running it by Chris Wu and John Weiss, of course, of the elders and the other leadership team members. But, but there's other guys like that, like Chris and other guys that I, I just don't do stuff much to, unless I ask them what they think. So I never do anything. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, you, uh, body ministry, worship teams, service teams, our missional outreaches to the campuses, uh, all this stuff, you know, I, that's probably something that's taking, starting to take root here. We have a certain level of community that most churches are not experiencing. Everything from the guys playing basketball on Sunday to, to the Wright State Ministries and the Opponents Ministry and the Cedarville outreaches and uh, all the things we've done with Wiz Kids, the prayer meetings on Monday nights and Friday nights. Are you living in, like, do you only come on the Lord's Day? Well, then you're going to be like that same Christian who reads the Bible 10 minutes a day. You're going to be starving. Do you ever really have some fellowship with brothers? I, you know, I'm not, you know, like fellowship in our culture. I read a very good book on fellowship once by a, a guy named Jerry Bridges. And, uh, now, it was kind of more of a parachurch thing, but still, you know, you know, it kind of exposes the fact that we've turned fellowship into we get together to play euchre. And I'm okay with the fact that we play basketball or we go bowling. I, I, frankly, I love when we go bowling because <laughs> uh, nobody in our church is any good in it, and that's what makes it really fun. <laughs> like, no one can be that competitive because no one can, you know, like if, if people get over 100, that's a good game. <laughs> So uh, it's, it's great bowling with people who don't really bowl. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, you're just there for the fellowship of it. But, but do you have people that you can really confess your sins to, that you can really humble yourself with, that you get guidance from before you make decisions? I find it a very strange thing in our culture that people make all kinds of decisions about big areas of life, vocational directions, courting directions financial big directions, goals, uh, and so forth. And they do it with very little discussion with anybody they're that close with. That's, in, that's, that's idiotacy, lunacy. I'm trying to put two words together. It's ludicrous. It's not just a rapper anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Really, the, the bigger the decision, the more I kind of uh, enlarge my circle of advisors. It's as simple as that. You know, when the recession hit in 2008, we were, you know, I normally have the elders, of course, my wife first, my pastor, our elders, uh, 
usually my wife first, the elders second, uh, the elders' wives, then my pastor, then several other pastors in the ARC, then people on our leadership team. I usually have that kind of a, uh, and then there's other guys uh, that I kind of think are good thinkers and level-headed, and and so and, uh, and a lot. Most of the time, they don't even know I'm getting advice from them. I'm just like, well, what do you think about this? <laughs> you know? And uh, so, but when the recession hit, I I contacted over a hundred of my Christian friends that owned businesses and had financial wisdom, because we had to steer from having you know, having our business provide this church $2,000 to $6,000 a month to keep it afloat. We had to, we had to keep the doors open and do all kind of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, we trusted God, but we trusted God by getting the plan through all these brothers who helped us uh, realize the plan. And uh, particularly a couple brothers from our Bowling Green Church that own very successful businesses. I sat down with them and a couple pastors said, what are we going to do? You know, the bottom line I'm trying to say is you've got to find Christ in each other. Now, I always have my main advisors, of course, be my wife and our elderships. Your main advisor should be the covenant community you belong to. I personally think you should have some Christian friends who aren't necessarily in that covenant community who would have different paradigms and different perspectives. I wouldn't put as much weight on their input usually. But I would want it, in, if, especially in the bigger decisions. That's why I don't just have a pastor. I have four pastors just in the Alliance for Renewal Churches alone that I get advice from regularly. And I don't make any decisions till I've gone through that process. A lot of times if I think a particular brother or sister has this or that problem and that it needs to be addressed and so forth, I might let it sit for as much as a couple months before I say anything. Because I want to make sure that from the Holy Spirit, from the scriptures, and from some good uh, brethren, that I've got the right perspective on it. Don't live life as an island. Don't do your own thing. You will pay terrible prices for that. If you're trying to learn how to be fruitful, as a number of you are, uh, evangelizing and discipling and so forth, regularly talk over who you're evangelizing and discipling and how it's going with people who've done it more and have more proven fruit with it. Say, what would you have done in this situation? Now, there's no substitute from just doing it and letting the Holy Spirit and the scriptures that you've stored up in your mind and heart teach you. But, but it definitely helps to have brothers who've done it that you can bounce things off of and get some input. That's how I learned a good percentage of the principles I use from other guys. Lastly, I didn't save enough time, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Number four is embracing trials. Now, I think John is going to share something along this line, so I'll try to be brief here today. But, you know, I just have had a burden lately that we are a particularly wimpy culture right now. You know, if you would just put yourself in the shoes of people who lived in the 1940s in Europe. You know, people who, thanks to the wonderful religion of Nazi fascism, never saw their relatives again, had all their families ripped out of their arms, killed, so forth. Like, we have not faced war. We have not faced hunger. Even our people who are on government assistance need diets. Our dogs need diets. We have the fattest dogs in the history of the world. We do. And uh, most of us have become quite lackadaisical with ourselves. I, you know, I get kind of bent out of shape if I have to get up and get over to my wife's chair because she left the remote at her chair instead of my chair. <laughs> I mean, it's like, like oh my gosh, I, I got to get up and go seven feet to get the remote. <laughs> What hardship. Oh, Elizabeth, I'm coming home. Uh, <laughs> you know, we are, uh, I, I just can't encourage you enough that there's a way that you have to receive Christ is by fellowshipping his sufferings. You have to know the heartache of when Paul said, Demas has left us, 
that Peter has denied him, that all the disciples fled. You have to know what it's like to have a harsh boss, to have to live maybe by sales, which takes great faith. You know, um, and I, I don't want to say this stuff just to, to praise myself or anything. I really don't, but it's just a, a testimony. You know, my Christian life started with the death of my closest brother. That, and my first Christian speech was at his funeral. I was 17 years old, and I had to decide because, it, in a strength, if you knew the whole testimony, that was the day after he died that I really got filled with the power of the Holy Spirit for the first time. And I realized that violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. And I'm coming out of six years of drug addiction. And I'm coming out of uh, underachievement. I'm on a probationary program to college because I didn't even graduate in the top, top 50% of my high school class. I, had to, I knew this was a golden opportunity to change my life. Well, then I would never have this kind of opportunity again. And so I didn't actually even cry for the first time after he died till, I, till about 10 years later. Because I had one life to get right with Christ. And I realized I'm going to see him in 70 years. But I'm going to face what happened out of, you know, what I became because of his life. And he was the guy who prayed me into becoming a Christian. And so I just decided I'm not going to waste this opportunity and let, this, and let my little brother down. I'm certainly not going to let Christ down. So I went a little crazy with studying. It, it drives me nuts these days that people, have, you're like, you know, you're not going to be a good student. You're not going to be a good employee. You're not going to be a good Christian if you don't learn to make some sacrifices. You can't have the same amount of time you would have had before you were serious about God on Facebook or TV. The first four years I was a Christian, I didn't have TV. On purpose. I, my favorite team made it to the World Series my, after I'd been a Christian four years, and I actually went into campus to watch part, part of one of the World Series games for a couple hours. That was the first time I'd watched television since I'd become a Christian. Four years later. And I'm, you know, and I used to study on my knees at night. You might think that's nuts, but I graduated with honors. I got an assistantship because of it, and I was able to read the Bible three hours a day. And, what I, and I'm not trying to praise myself, but I'm telling you that this prepared me for what I need to serve you. You know, I was at a, a funeral of a very close loved one once. And uh, this was many years later, and if I hadn't sowed these kinds of emotional disciplines, and, and tr I trained myself not to need sleep if I didn't need sleep. Now, some people think that's ridiculous. You need, never make ridiculous. I used to train myself to study 72 hours if I had to study 72 hours. Paul, look at the scriptures. Paul did that. Christ did that. Some of us, if we don't get our 10 hours, we fall apart. <clears throat> you know, there might be nights that you can only get four hours and still do what God wants you to do that day. And I'm not saying live an irresponsible lifestyle. I'm saying put some steel in your soul. And I'm really, I'm really concerned about this for us right now. Because to whom much has been given, much is required. This church has been entrusted more than any church I know of in terms of the insight in the elders we have, in the community we have, in the things of the Holy Spirit, and the approaches to Scripture, and getting back to the apostolic hermeneutic. We have been entrusted a lot. And to whom much has been given, much is required. And we need, you need to start by requiring it of yourself. You really do. You know, I was, again, I'll, I'll end with this story, and I'm sorry I'm so over, but it would probably the world won't end if we don't finish by 12. Uh, and, you know, I'm at a funeral of a very, very close uh, relative, and I'm asked to be a pallbearer with my cousins and my brothers and different people. And so 
we put the hearse in the casket. And as I'm putting it in, another relative taps me on the shoulder and says, can we talk? Now, I'm already grieved over the fact that this person didn't know the Lord. It's one thing when your brother, my little brother loved the Lord. It, it, that's so easy to deal with when somebody dies that loves the Lord. But this other relative didn't know the Lord. Hated Christians, in fact. And they proceeded to walk me over to a little garden. And they began to tell me, that, did you know that this guy was a child molester? And I began to realize that lots of people I loved and cared for had been molested by this person. And that's why their lives were a mess. And they were now asking me to help them. Right then, right there. I didn't have the luxury to cry or anything. I had to, I had to be able to do what the situation required. Do you understand what I'm saying? And you have to put the steel in your soul ahead of time. And you have to have the scriptures memorized ahead of time. And you have to study different schools of thought on counseling ahead of time and so forth. And you have to be filled with the Spirit so that you can bring the power of God to bear on the situation. So I went past my time. But the fourth thing that's not on your, on your outline is you've got to embrace Christ in sufferings if you're going to find him at all. That's not popular today. And everybody thinks if you're fast or stayed up all night studying or whatever, that would be some kind of extreme asceticism. But it's not. I'm not talking about fasting till you're not healthy. I'm not talking about sleeping till you're not healthy. I'm talking about putting some abilities in your life to go a little extra mile. Look at what the athletes do. And they are after something very unimportant compared to what we're about. Amen.